Welcome to Right Now. It is I, Stephen Kent. Hope you all had an amazing 4th of July weekend celebrating living in the greatest country on earth. It is a day to me that always feels like mashing the reset button on our troubles and bickering, or at least hitting pause <laughs> on all the culture wars, which, by the way, are nothing new. The clash between patriotic correctness and far-left revisionist history is all part of the occasional headache that is liberty. I live outside of Washington, D.C. in Prince William County, one of the areas with the fastest growing Latino and Indian populations in the country. And one way you would know it is events like Fourth of July, street festivals here, and the energy and pride you can feel in the streets about being here or being an American. This is from out in California, but I saw this video on Instagram of my friend Tapmine Debazorgi celebrating not her birthday, but her six years of being an American. Happy American birthday, dear yes. Tamina. Happy American birthday to you. Thank you. Two thumbs up. I love it. She came here from Iran. She knows what Independence Day means. And we are losing that in part because of apathy and in part because of the malice on part of nativists and Marxists. <laughs> That's just the truth. Send us a video or pic on social from your July 4th celebration, something that captures all the joy of being an American. Tag us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at RightlyAJ. And do subscribe here on YouTube or your podcatcher. I'm on Twitter also at Stephen underscore Kent 89. Would love to talk to you. Uh, so anyways, what we have here is something to be proud of. It's worth defending. And that starts with how we raise the next generation and talk to them about this country and the ideas that built it. By now, all of you who watch and listen to this show know that I'm a girl dad, father to an incredible daughter with a passion for hiking, rock climbing, scouting, and all things reptilian. I do my best to encourage those interests, even though snakes, like why did it have to be snakes? Just the one thing I didn't want. But anyways, I try to instill in her the values I and her mother feel strongly about. Among those things are humility, service, reverence, courage. We don't actually share the same political orientation, her mother and I, but we have shared values, and that goes a long way in raising a daughter in the world today. My guest today, Michelle Easton, understands the importance of this. She's the founder and president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women and author of the new book, How to Raise a Conservative Daughter. Michelle, welcome to Right Now. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. What well, is very nice to have you on and meet you. I very much enjoyed the book. And I just wanted to say, it's always sort of serendipitous when a publicist reaches out with a new book and it feels really timely because I have been losing a lot of sleep these days over what we are hearing in the news so much right now about like gender ideology and critical race theory in schools. The world is changing so fast out from underneath our feet. And I have to imagine that there's been a strong reception to your book among people who I don't know, just trying to raise their daughters uh, the way that they would like to see them raised. 
Yes, there has been a great reception. These are challenging times, and How to Raise a Conservative Daughter is meant to be a guide for parents and grandparents and anybody in a family in a position to, or outside of the family, to influence the development of uh, young Americans, of our daughters. Um, and the, what you mentioned uh, right up front, the schools. It used to be, Stephen, that... Uh, more of us shared values and uh, you could send your kid off to uh, public school or even private school and be pretty confident that uh, we agreed on things. But it's not that way anymore. And parents have to be a lot more vigilant about what their their girls are being taught at school. Everything from critical race theory to the, you know, that white, white people are racist to the 1619 Project, which is grossly inaccurate history, to, you know, the wonders of socialism. Yeah, they even um, the things and, down uh, to, I mean, some of the, the discourse around the Equality Act and things pertaining to, like, gender ideology is not just, like, making space yes. for people to be certain ways, but actually advancing a certain no. position of kind of how gender and sex should be. And so I think that just brings me to the question of, like, what do you think is the definition, or what does a conservative girl look like today? And when you're raising a conservative daughter, what does that mean? Because I think I think your opponents might view it as, oh, this very prim and proper little lady who speaks 19th century dictation and has very proper manners, uh, rather than actually just being someone who's outgoing, courageous, precocious. What's your view of that? Well, there's, there's a lot of things uh, that you would want to focus on to have a conservative daughter. I think first off and key, and it's my first chapter, is, is faith. Um, it's not that you can't be a conservative if you don't have faith. But certainly for a young woman, knowing that your self-worth comes from God uh, and not from government, that's key. Certainly the strength of a family, understanding what an incredible, exceptional country we live in, understanding that a woman's differences, you know, the miracle of childbirth, these are strengths. These are, we don't, we don't think that men and women are absolutely equal. Defending life at the very beginning, at the very end, um, service to others, um, Michelle, can I ask you a question about that, actually, with the, the matter of faith? Because sure. that's chapter one of your book, is, is really talking yes. about uh, belief in God, higher power, and, and that sort of defines self-worth. And when I think of, when I think of a lot of the, the toils that we're having as a country today, it is this, this grappling over who are we, where do we come from, why are we here? And that permeates so many levels of our discourse, and I think it is one of the things that is making it really hard to be a young woman today. Um, but I, I, I just want to know, like, why can you not be conservative and perhaps be an atheist? Because, of course, I know tons of people who are sort of in dark valleys of their faith, no longer believe in God, but they have what you'd call conservative politics. Why can't they uh, both exist at the same time? Well, you can, you can, but certainly for a young woman, knowing that she's uniquely made and unconditionally loved by God, it's a cornerstone of conservatism. When you think about it, you know, the countries that suppress faith and religion, what is their God? It's government. Uh, you look at uh, you know, communist countries, socialist countries, where you know, North Korea, communist China, uh, Cuba, where believers are thrown in jail for religious uh, beliefs and expression. Why is that? Why is that? It's because if you believe in God, you know, for example, in America, our rights don't come from government. Our rights come 
from God and the Declaration of Independence states that very clearly. It's what makes us different and unique. So a belief in God, um, you know, as God gives us our basic rights and our basic uh, self and soul as opposed to government, oh yeah, you know, free stuff from government. This is a difference between most conservatives and the left. Yeah, I mean, I, I've said many times in the past, it's it's one of those great bulwarks against tyrannical government. Uh, a, a tyrannical government cannot exist if its people believe that they are made by a higher power and that the ultimate power in the universe is in fact not sitting in the Capitol building of XYZ country, city, or state. Like that is a, a huge orientation of the way that you order your life. Um, can we talk a little bit about femininity? Uh, I would like to know how you sort of rank, um, you know, traditional definitions of femininity in being conservative and how to raise your daughter. Because I'm the father of, I guess, what you would call the old world, a tomboy. Uh, you don't hear that word thrown around very much anymore. And I think it used to very much be the case that there was an understanding. Uh, girls could be a lot of different ways and they could have sort of different characteristics. But I, I swear, and it's, it's not an over-exaggeration, to say like there are people now who if your daughter uh, exhibits like what you would call masculine traits or likes to get rough and get in the mud and all that stuff they're like oh well she might be a boy she's <laughs> in a couple of years she's going to change her identity and they're they're talking to kids about this stuff behind closed doors yeah. away from parents and it's it's kind of unnerving but i think you've got a more complicated view of this yeah, I mean, that is totally wacky. Since the beginning of time, some girls are all ruffles in pink when they're younger. Others like to climb trees and, and play in the mud, and that's fine. And I think as parents, we want to encourage our, our, our daughters to be what comes naturally to them. It has This whole transgender movement is, is so... Um, difficult for people to deal with. I mean, it's the notion that, oh, well, because she's a tomboy, she, she wants to be a boy. That's crazy. She's a girl. She's a biological girl. And, uh, uh, you know, she may always be athletic and, and interested in those kind of things. But the differences between uh, women and men, the differences are our strength. It's the natural variations between men and women that are biological. You know, the miracle of childbirth that elevates women uh, in a way that nothing else can. And yet, you know, this notion that men and women are absolutely equal is a feminist notion and a left-wing notion. Uh, it, it's not. It's not helpful. Um, there are differences. Why is, why is no differences. Equality, um, I, I know this is a, a decades-old debate, right? Like it kind of goes back to the, the Equal Rights Amendment, and now we have stuff like the Equality Act, and, and conservatives kind of say, like, you know, like equality is is kind of a, a weird notion to be pursuing. Why are women and men not equal in your view? What is that? They're not physically equal, but they're intellectually equal. There are differences in the bodies. Um, we have a wonderful little booklet that we put out here about the differences when it comes to intimacy. Um, it's called uh, A Guide to Hooking Up. It's for college girls. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, it's a medical. Uh, yours is probably too little for this yet. I'm guessing but rule it's a number medical... one in the guide is don't do it. <laughs> The guide is really, it's not, it's not moralistic, which I like to be moralistic. Uh It's totally scientific. It talks about the differences between men and women when it comes to intimacy. Women just kissing and hugging, this hormone comes out. It's the same hormone that women have when they nurse their babies. They, they bond, they fall in love. 
men and women generally are different when it comes to intimacy. Now, don't tell me we're exactly the same. We're not. And you know, from the beginning of time, mothers have been telling their girls, you know, you want to limit your activity at a certain age until you, you know, you really know what you want. Uh, men are different than women when it comes to the physical response to physical intimacy. There's a big difference, okay? Um, we've talked about childbirth. Uh, you know, women have uh, a limited number of eggs in their body to create the babies. Uh, men have billions of uh, sperm. Uh, so there's different physical um, inclinations. You've been following uh, the feminist movement for a long time. Uh, you've seen sort of a lot yes. of its different phases and how do we get, how do we get to where we are now? where the feminist movement of today in the weirdest ways, and this has seeped into the, the Biden administration and some of their recent dictates that they've handed down, where they refer to women as birthing persons because they don't want to alienate the transgender movement when talking about who is a woman and who is not. I mean, what kind of feminist refers to womanhood as being a birthing person? I, 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 do, you, do you view it as like this is the inevitable conclusion to this ideology or no, just something weird has happened? It's a weird blip. Um, you know, the original feminists or suffragettes, it was all about equal treatment under the law and women voting. And, of course, we were all for that. But way back in the day, Mrs. Lewis, Clever Lewis, called herself a feminist back when it meant strong, courageous, you know, ambitious woman. But the notion that um, that anybody can have a child, a, a birthing person, it's just wacky. It's just totally wacky. And y y you can only wonder. I mean, your, your heart goes out to people who are terribly confused <laughs> about their sexuality. Um, and it used to be, well, consenting adults, we tolerate, we could tolerate it. But now... The popular culture and the media want us all to clap and celebrate and say, isn't this wonderful? We need more of this. No, we don't. Yeah, um, and I think, heart goes I think out to that exactly, like that brings up, and, and this is why I think the first chapter of your book is so important, is because so much of the modern world, modernity uh, at large, like they, it is all about finding your worth in momentary trends, things that are happening right now, being part of movements, um, moving to New York after you finally uh, turn 18 and, and discovering yourself in the city up until you're 35 and then finally I wonder like, what happened to the, my life the past 10 years? Rather than finding your yeah. worth in you, and, and I would say also in God, like right, finding your, your worth somewhere right. else. But I just feel like people don't know who they are, and that is part of the ideology that I think you are challenging, is teaching girls yes. to know themselves, and right. that is part right. of being right. a conservative young woman. Yes, and it's understanding the difference between the self-worth that comes from God and the self-esteem that we're supposed to all tell kids. My sister was a teacher. She was told to tell the children numerous times throughout the day how awesome they were. Well, they weren't always awesome. And then when they were awesome, they'd heard it too many times, so it didn't matter. That is very different, <laughs> that self-satisfaction from yeah. self-worth, which is your your sense of your own value as a human being. And that's what comes from God. And that's why conservatism and religious faith are, are inextricably linked. And it's why totalitarian governments um, impose atheism on their people. They want... People to look to government, not to God, not to their inner strength and spirit for the most important things in life. And it's what makes conservatives and leftists quite different. 
Yeah, we I was, know I was so taking much my daughter yeah. out on a little nature excursion the other week, and we were doing what we like to do on the weekends, which is she likes to hunt for snakes and snatch them right out of the river. Uh, big, big, scary things. And it had been a couple of weeks since we had last caught one. And so she was a little, uh, what would be the word, like a little squeamish. She was a little bit skittish about making the grab. So she's out in the river, knee deep in this water. She sees one right in front of her on a rock. And she's starting to kind of tremble. And I'm like, Sylvia, are you afraid? Like, you do this all the time. What's, what's the problem? And she looked at me, and I could see the fear in her eyes. And I didn't really know what to say in that moment. Beside, I looked at her, and I said, Sylvia, look at me. I said, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You've done this a million times. You know you can do this. And it was, I think, just like reminding her that she knows who she is. And then she reached out and made that grab, and she she let that fear go in just that moment. But the world just so often is trying to tell you that you're somebody else other than the person that you know in your most quiet moments, your real soul, your convictions, and the things that you love and are interested in. You are a wonderful father to be doing that with her, even though she don't like snakes yourself. It's a true but you're right. <laughs> I can imagine. It's something in her, and it's why how to raise a conservative daughter is really key right now because the culture today, the social media, I mean, so many parents just don't recognize how toxic it is, Stephen. Uh, you know, the indoctrination in the schools, the entertainment industry. Parents have to be really alert and have to really watch, have to talk. Dinner table conversations are so critical. Um, and you can't just assume that, that they're going to understand all this because it's not a fair fight. There's so much left-wing, feminist, uh, atheist uh, philosophy that they're getting in every other sphere of life outside of you and the home uh, and, you know, you and your wife and your values. Do you it's think too that, much. It's not a fair fight. something more hardline needs to be done about kids and social media because... Um, I'm, again, I'm, I'm kind of lucky in this regard in that my child is kind of a, a Luddite by choice. She's not interested in it, and as I've never had to yeah. fight her over a phone. Um, right. But do you think that like raising a conservative child at some point comes up against social media culture, which is all about you know group uh, group dynamics, like clapter from your friends, getting satisfaction from people that you don't know, or applause yes. from people that you don't yeah. know. Are they compatible? Yes. And do you think that parents need to take a harder line, maybe just saying, actually, no, social media <laughs> accounts are not appropriate uh, for a child uh, age, you know, one through 18, even? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can see what you're saying. And I think it's probably not practical to totally ban it, but at a minimum, it should be very much restricted. Um, when you look at all the things that girls can do, they can be have much richer things in their life, be in a church groups, do athletics, do art, do music. Read, read, read. Teach your daughters to read. Let them see you reading. <laughs> it's such a richer, more fulfilling kind of life than the sum of the silliness on social media, which is addictive. It is addictive. So at a minimum, as a parent, you want to limit it tremendously and get your girl involved in all kinds of other things that are much richer, that will mean a lot more to her, family activities, religious activities, um, because it is it is contrary to the values of an awful lot of moms and dads, yeah. and it's very hard to control. 
So I want to give you an opportunity to put me on trial here because I have heard from different friends in my life um, across the conservative kind of spectrum that exists about my choice to allow my daughter to enroll in what was previously known as the Boy Scouts of America program. So I'm sure you saw about two years ago it was, Boy Scouts uh, opened up, kind of rebranded as the scouting program, and they started welcoming girls. There are a couple different reasons for this. I think, like, you know, there's their financial troubles. Uh, then there's also just trying to get members in to actually pay some of their bills. And then there's also the cultural stuff, right? You get, you get social media applause from everybody except the Girl Scouts. If the Boy Scouts then sort of start to disregard the gender or sex-based barriers into the program. But I was faced with this decision, which is I have this kind of daughter who loves this stuff. She doesn't want to be in Girl Scouts because she wants to do specifically what I did. She wants to be an Eagle Scout. And I was like, okay, I think the Boy Scouting program was virtuous, teaches you good things. The Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. And I was like, those are the things I want you to know. And I don't know what they teach in Girl right. Scouts, so I'm not going to put you in it. <laughs> what do you think of that decision? And am I, am I sacrificing or putting anything at risk with a decision like that? I don't think you are. You know, Dan, you're looking at it and you're seeing these are things your daughter's interested in. I was a Girl Scout. I learned some boy stuff, if you call it boy stuff. I learned how to do a campfire. I learned some camping things. Um, yeah. You know, the Boy Scouts made the decision to let the girls in. That's another topic. But um, you got a good troop there. You've got a good scoutmaster. They're doing stuff your daughter wants. I, I, you know, it's not, it wasn't your decision to open it up to girls. So if it's good, she's well supervised. She's enjoying it. I don't, I don't see that it's a, a big problem. You, know, I'm, you want I'm her to be active. about your thoughts on that decision to, to kind of open up the program and put boys and girls like in that situation together where the Girl Scouts are still mostly closed off. I mean, what do you think about that? And do you think that that on the, the big picture is sort of detrimental to the way boys yeah. and girls should be raised? Well, maybe. I mean, I'm a big fan of occasionally having boys do things separately from girls. Um, the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women, which I founded, it's only women. It's not that we don't like men. We're all married. We love men. We have sons. It's because sometimes women, when they are by themselves, can really help the network and advance mm-hmm. each other. And I think it's the same for boys. I'm fine with lots of co-ed stuff. Um, you know, should the Boy Scouts have done it? I don't really know, Stephen. But I think that sometimes, you know, when the, the, the left, the feminists want everything to be co-ed. And I think that's wrong. I think boys need to be alone sometimes. Girls need to be alone sometimes. Yeah. And they need to be together. So it sounds like Boy Scouts, they're together now. Um yeah. You know. So I guess one of my questions to you on this book, um, and again, I, I really liked it. It's, I think one of your endorsements on the book is like, it's like Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life, but for raising a daughter. I think some of that rings true. I also kind of Thank read you. it and I went, you know, so th- I, I understand how some of these are, are traits of raising a conservative daughter. Like, you know, one of your chapters is managing money, uh, how to be a good steward of your finances, of course, defending life, knowing your differences, hard work as a virtue, rejecting envy, stuff like that. But I sort of think of these things as just like being a good person and being a well-rounded person. And you could probably be a liberal, you could be a progressive and have some of these foundational values. Do you think that it is exclusionary and sort of an unproductive way to say, like, these are specifically conservative values that only a conservative daughter would have? 
No, I don't, because in each one of these topics that you mentioned, you could go to the left, you could go to the feminists and the liberals, and they would disagree. They would disagree about life. They would disagree about um, uh, putting kids to work. I'm a, uh, So many of the young conservative leaders I've seen got jobs when they were young. Mm-hmm. They learned a lot about themselves, about life. You know, family first. Don't forget Hillary. It takes a village to raise a child. Ah, it takes a village to support mom and dad raising a child. I mean, there really are huge differences between conservatives and liberals and the left on some of these uh, on some of these key issues. Um, and uh, I just think that uh, there are some things that we share, and certainly a lot of this stuff could go for your sons as well. Um, but I do think that there are. Uh, basic doctrinal differences between conservatives and the left on some of these issues um, about America, about its exceptionalism, about things from God as opposed to government. I think there's real differences, Stephen. How do you think about the right way to talk to your kids about, you know, so on the right we talk a lot about, about socialism. It is this you know, never dying zombie ideology that just keeps rearing its head decade after decade after we think that it is going to go extinct. It never does because socialism's root motive is envy. It is wanting what your neighbor has. I learned in church that that is bad and that's one of the things that uh, has always kept me from actually going in that direction. It's it's my anchor. Um, How do you talk to kids about ideas like socialism without being like ham-handed about it, you know? Like, giving them those values and those virtues that will keep them away from ideas like that long term? Well, sometimes an indirect uh, way. For example, one of my favorites, when they're talking about capitalism is evil and socialism is so good, I like to talk about the caravans of people from Central America. Why aren't they going to Venezuela? That's socialist paradise, um, which is much closer, instead of trekking all the way to the U.S. border. Because a free country like the U.S. is a better place with more opportunity and promise for them than Venezuela, which is now a socialist paradise where they're out of baby food and uh, bring their own toilet paper um, and huge poverty with uh, hundreds of thousands of people fleeing the country uh, because it's so horrible. So look at these things. Look at Cuba. Why do people get on those rafts? And, and, and float through shark-infested waters to leave Cuba if it's such a socialist paradise. North Korea, you know, that big wall. You can't leave. You can't leave. So I think sometimes that of preaching the philosophy, look at the real-life situation in the world. Look at the socialist countries. Look at the free countries. Where do people go? Are people fleeing to socialist countries? No. Why not? And get her thinking about that. Yeah, I think one of the anecdotes that you gave in the in the book as well was just talking about uh, the grades that kids make in school and whether or not you would redistribute grades. I, I feel like that's a kind of a long-standing example um, of sort of a way to talk about merit um, and I guess the the clash between equality of opportunity versus equity based on outcomes. Um, one of those things to talk to kids about when they're when they're feeling those pangs of envy. Because just the other week, I was at a friend's house, new family friend's house. We were visiting them, and 
I noticed when we left the house, uh, their house is so much bigger than ours. We live in a, in a pretty tiny townhouse, first-time homeowners. I noticed in my daughter's eyes, they were kind of they're kind of moving a little bit, and she was wandering off. I was like, what are you, what are you thinking about? And she was just like, it was just so nice uh, playing in the yard. And I kind of like felt this, this little stab in my heart because I've, I've worked really hard to get our, our first home at all, and we don't have a yard. And I, I just had to say, you know, I'm, I'm proud of every square foot that we do have. Uh, darling, and you know, one day we'll have that yard, but you know, envy, uh, it will eat you up if you don't learn how to, how to right. tame it. Um, and it's right. just, that's, I feel like it's one of those things you just have to have good conversations in. about. You're right. Uh, and that's where faith comes in. Thou shall not covet. Um, you can appreciate it. You can love it. You can enjoy it. And then she can learn that if she works very hard, one day she'll be able to have whatever she wants and and you're going to continue to work hard and, and maybe you'll have a bigger house. It sounds, sounds like you've got a beautiful house. <laughs> oh, we're working on it. First houses are special. Well, yep. um, yep. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, Claire Booth Luce, the namesake of the organization mm-hmm. um, uh, of which you are, are the head uh, president of the board, right? Uh, I'm, yes, I'm president. Yes, okay, yeah, I just wanted, to make sure, just wanted to make sure I had that title right, yeah. and founder. So, yeah, when I was reading about Claire Booth Lewis, like, her biography to me was just incredibly relevant to a lot of the, the yeah. fighting, the debates, yeah. the discourses that we are having today. Um, race, nationalism, class, gender, mm-hmm. like, she was working on all of these things. Um, what is her legacy? How do people remember her today? Because I had never heard her name personally before reading your book, and now I'm very interested. Well, that's great. Um, she was an amazing woman. When it came to founding this organization and naming it, <clears throat> I started looking for women who had incredibly well-rounded lives and successes, and she was a woman of great faith. She had a very fine family. She had an unbelievable career during a time... Uh, my great grandmother, your probably your great grandmother, great great grandmother. Um, she had such a well-rounded life, and so she, she's really a role model. There was no contest; there was nobody else for young women today, young conservative women who aspire to have a family, to have faith, to have a professional career. And uh, she seldom taught, even in uh, in any classes. That's why you've never heard of her. Um, she's certainly not taught in the feminist uh, women's studies courses and women's history courses, because they only teach about women who are left-wing socialist liberal feminists. They don't teach about conservative women. It's not women's studies. It's left-wing women's studies. So that's why you haven't heard of her. But she was an amazing woman, an, a renaissance woman, to do all those things. Um, she had a family. She had the faith. She was also, this may be interesting to you, she was essentially self-educated. She, uh, her father was a musician. He traveled all around. She had four years of form- formal schooling, and the rest she was homeschooled. That's a that's a, a argument for homeschooling, isn't it? <laughs> she read. She became a great speaker, a great writer, um, and I mean, her legacy is a woman can come from a tough background, work very, very, very hard, and have great success personally, professionally. And have great faith. Well, we are we are working on that that question of homeschooling right now, and whether or not that's the road we want to go down. Because, you know, it may be, it may well be that uh, the the K through twelve public school system is uh, over the brink, <laughs> and at the point where it is best to take it into your own hands. Uh, Michelle Easton, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, everybody should go pick it up. It is called How to Raise a Conservative Daughter. It was a good read, uh, Michelle. Thank you for taking the time to talk it over. 
Thank you and God bless you and your daughter and your wife. Absolutely. We are always looking for some good news and positive trends here on Right Now. And this week we found it with Matthew McConaughey. He started a little bit of buzz uh, this week from his 4th of July remarks. Let's check them out. Happy birthday, America. Yes, indeed, as we celebrate our independence. Let's admit that this last year's trip around the sun was also another head scratcher. Um, but let's also remember that we are babies. You know, as a country, we were basically going through puberty in comparison to um, other countries' timelines. Um, and we're going to go through growing pains. We are going through growing pains. And this is good because we got to keep learning. And we got to make sure we maintain hope along the way as we continue to evolve. Why? Because it's who we are. Why? Because the alternative sucks. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, I get it, man. I get it. No, no. Mind blown. Mind blown. <laughs> Why does this man always sound like he is high? Uh, bless Matthew McConaughey. He is who he is. Uh, what can you say? So I actually... His message, like, so a lot of people are making fun of it online, and I get why. Uh, it's a pretty crude analogy. Like, puberty is an awkward way to describe the last year of life in America and evokes a lot of unpleasant imagery. But Matthew McConaughey is right, though, and I want to tell you why. And this is something that gives me hope when I turn on the news or scroll Twitter and everything feels awful. It's a bit of a trope to say that America is a young country, so therefore you shouldn't worry about anything. There are tons of young countries in the world. We're actually pretty average in terms of nation states based on when they've declared sovereignty. The average country is like, I don't know, like 160 years old in terms of having an established consist consistent form of government. But the thing that makes America what it is, is is that it's founded on some radical, young, and untested ideas. Most notably that your rights as an American are inherent. No human being came up with them for you. And as such, they cannot be justifiably kept from you. You don't get a 15th Amendment, a 19th Amendment, or Civil Rights Act of 1964 without this notion about rights, that they're God-given, and if they are being withheld, you got to get them back. You have to take them back. Whether you believe in God or not, think about the thousands of years of human history and government. The norm has been monarchy, despotism, slavery, war, famine. The norm has always also been relatively racially homogeneous nation states and empires. Like Rome is a classic example of a more ancient civilization that was a multiracial empire by nature of its sprawl, but intensely hierarchical with caste-like ideas of who was born to govern and who was born to be governed. It took America till 1964 to at least give its founding vision a real fair shake. Technically, we turned 245 this week, but when I see national tension like the kind we have experienced this past year, regarding race, identity, history, the kind of government that we have, I say to myself that we are only 57 years old. We are only now taking on the challenge of being a multiracial republic stitched together with nothing but ideas and a sense of shared purpose, not to mention an equal right to participate in said republic. And it is going to be really hard. It is going to hurt and be scary 
and occasionally dark, but there is a light worth hurting for, and that light is what we celebrated this week. It is 1776. All men created equal, rights from God that are unalienable, the value of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, government that exists to secure those rights, not gift them to you, and the right of the governed to alter or abolish the form of government if it is failing to do these things thus the 15th and 19th Amendments, for example. Our challenge is to expand freedom and opportunity at the same time not forget where we came from and to not lose sight of how radical and youthful the American experiment is, which is, I think, what Matthew McConaughey was talking about. It's going to be turbulent, but it's going to be worth it. I will let Ron Swanson have the last word on it. And I will spend the day getting to know London's history. History began on July 4th, 1776. Everything before that was a mistake. <laughs> Bingo! All right, thanks for watching. I'm Stephen Kent. And remember, always ask why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. See you next week, folks.